This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome, everybody. Tonight's focus is on Victoria. We have the dirtiest power stations in Australia and also a new Labour government that I think really gets it about climate change. Later we'll talk to Tom Doig about the Morwell mine fire. But first we have the Honourable Lisa Neville. Uh, Lisa Neville is the Minister for Environment and Climate Change in the Victorian State Parliament. She said recently, we are putting climate change back on the agenda. In the absence of national leadership on this critical issue, we must take the lead. So hello Lisa. Afternoon. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. And I'm very delighted to hear that we're back into the climate action mode. Um, how is it going now since you've been in Parliament? Um, well, since we were elected, uh, we've, um, which is now coming up to around six months, uh, we've, you know, I suppose we've had our first budget and it's been the first lot of money that's gone into climate change uh, in four years. Uh, I'm rebuilding the department, so we lost three-quarters of our climate change staff under the previous government. Um, we're allowed to use the word climate change, and when I mentioned that to the department, uh, they uh, cheered at the time, the staff there. Yeah. Uh, we've rejoined the International Climate Group, um, and we're in the process of um, looking at issues around renewable energy, the review of the Climate Change Act, and I've had a roundtable recently with a number of our key um, experts, I suppose, in the area of climate change. So look, we're moving forward quickly and hopefully by the end of the year we'll have completed the review of the Climate Change Act and have a very clear roadmap in terms of the work that Victoria is going to be doing. Oh, great. Well, look, it's gone very stagnant about the renewable energy target at the federal level and I think the states are all starting to think they might, or some of the states are starting to think they have to lead. Um, a lot of people are talking about the VRET would you tell us how that would drive new jobs in places like Morwell and Geelong? So the way that the, uh, the higher the target uh, or, uh, that's required under a renewable energy target, um, the, more, the, the greater the requirement is for companies to be purchasing green energy, for example. Mm. So that then means that you drive investment in wind farms or in solar farms. Originally, Victoria used to have its own renewable energy target, and uh, what you know, a few years back, when uh, under the Kevin Rudd government, there was an agreement because obviously, if you've got this at a federal level, that's much better than to have 
updates with all different targets. Um, but we, we signed up to what was the 41,000 gigawatt hour target, which would drive not just wind power, but also larger scale solar power as well. Um, and that's where you start to get really significant contributions to the grid, electricity grid, but also significant jobs. What? Unfortunately, under this um, government, federally, uh, the Tony Abbott government, where that's now been dropped right down to 33,000 gigawatt hours. And that that has a really significant impact on the sort of confidence and the investment that you'll see in renewable energy. So we've said to Tony Abbott, look, OK, but if that's what you want, we want to be more ambitious than that. We want to set a higher target. So let us um, get out of the way and change the legislation and allow us to also go back to having our own renewable energy target that builds on the federal one. And we, you know, we know that there are thousands and thousands of jobs possible with a higher target, and that's what, what we want to achieve, as well as a higher target means uh, increases in green and clean energy. Yeah. Well, another big aspect of re- uh, reducing our emissions is energy efficiency, and I believe you recently had a meeting with Greg Hunt. I think I read it in the news that... He has an emissions reduction fund worth $2.5 billion. Um, what did he say and how can Victoria access that for energy efficiency? So we, ha- we've had a, we have had a conversation about that and uh, there's still a bit of work to do because there seems to be a bit of a difference between the federal minister's view and his department's view. But he was keen to see Victoria looking at opportunities, uh, for example, if we had hospitals that um, we could put up as a package to increase their energy efficiency um, and seek federal funding to assist us to do that through the um, Energy Reduction Fund. So um, so we're having a look at those issues. In the first round, the Commonwealth uh, basically only really got... um, There was very little in terms of that space that came through in that first round. Mm. So Victoria is very keen, and the Premier's asked me to lead the work around this, to look at opportunities right across government to drive energy efficiency and drive ways in which we can access this federal money. Yeah. Well, look, I said at the head of the program, Victoria's got the dirtiest power stations, and really the big issue is coal. And um, it was a huge victory for the Anglesey community. You know, they heard recently that the coal mine there will be closed down in August. And I want to know now about Hazelwood. Do you have a plan to replace it? And, uh, you know, people want to know especially how jobs will be provided as the power plant is closed down. So, uh, firstly, the Anglesey one is a very different story. That was a a power station and a mine that was established way back in the 60s um, to supply power to Alcoa. Uh, And Alcoa was... Victoria's biggest user of electricity up until its closure uh, last year. So it wasn't. So you know, it, so it was never going to really be viable without Alcoa operational. So mm. it's a very different scenario than the little Trobe Valley, where the power stations continue to provide significant power into our grid. And I, I think, firstly, the starting point is we have to drive up renewable energy because we need to actually have some viable options, mm. uh, other power going into the grid to really um, our economy would stop without electricity being used. So we're, one of the priorities is obviously the renewable energy sector, 
Um, we've got a $20 million fund, which is about co-investing and driving investment in renewable energy. Mm. So we really do have a viable uh, renewable energy um, sector that can actually start to uh, replace coal-fired um, coal electricity yeah. um, within the grid. There'll also be a process, obviously, through the Hazelwood Fire Fire communities to be having this conversation as well. And the Premier's been really clear that this is something that we need to work with communities on um, and not to make policy on the one. But no, until no. we really drive renewable energy, we, we need, until we can drive that up, and it really came to a standstill for four years, um, it's not really an option. And of course, you know, unfortunately, the move away from having any sort of a... Um, an emission target federally that's viable, mm. then it's also difficult. That, 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 uh, some of those settings will oh, make a difference. Yeah, I know. So, yeah. Um, so there's still work and discussions to go on about all of these issues. I appreciate that, but I, you know, the, a lot of people are saying, well, look, this is the right moment now. We've got, I think, something like five Hazelwoods worth of energy in the grid. You know, we've got an excess of energy supply, so this is the right moment to fast forward with renewables and have a, a policy. I just wondered, do you feel the urgency in the community about this? You know, there seems to be a build-up of desire well, to really close well, something, sure like, that. big down. Well, I think there's, an, there's absolutely embracing and what we see really significant renewable energy being put into the grid. And we just haven't seen that in Victoria. You have in South Australia. Mm. Um, you are seeing it in the ACT. So... We're repositioning Victoria to be able to drive that and to drive that quickly, mm. but also to actually have um, an real alternative in terms of the provision of electricity going forward. The other thing is, you know, I've been down to Smallwell and, you know, I, I don't want to see us um, walking over that community again. Like, they've been through a process, they've, um, you know, feel very much abandoned by the previous government. Um, and I think we that the process through the Hazelwood Mine Inquiry will enable some of these discussions and rightly for the local communities down there to be very much central for that discussion. Oh, well, that's very good news that you've been, you know, tuning into them. Um, that's the message I was getting, that they don't want to be walked over again and abandoned. Yes, that's right. Mm. That's right. Well, later we're speaking to Tom Doig, who wrote that book, The Coalface, about the Morwell mine fire. And I'm glad you are reopening the inquiry into what happened. But um, according to that book, a lot of the workers are quite afraid of losing their jobs if they speak out about it. And um, I'd want to know what do you think needs to be done to protect them in this process? Look, this is obviously an important issue and one that the independent panel needs to address around, you know, protection for witnesses, etc. And I know that it's an issue that Bernard Teague, who is going to chair that, will will have a look at. So that it's rightly, I think, for the independent panel to make decisions about ensuring that they get the right evidence and that people feel confident about being able to come forward without consequences. And, of course, that's the idea about reopening this, is to really ensure that all the issues are on the table, all the facts are on the table, mm. so that we can you know, get some strong and robust recommendations that the community have confidence in. Mm. All right, Lisa, I'm, I'm sorry, the line isn't that good. I just have one more question. Um, you said something about a kind of culture change in one of the articles I read, and I really agree with that. I think the public is rather confused about climate change. Um, 
with something like water, for example. Do you remember when we had water restrictions and everyone got used to it and they were being very careful with water and frugal and then John Brumby relaxed the water restrictions? I seemed, I think it was his government. But Oh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't was it? definitely wasn't us. We can, no, no, it was all done in the last four years. Yeah. Right. So well, I remember when... away from saving water, yeah. Yeah, because that, that, that is confusing when people get the habit, a good habit, and then they sort of not yeah. rewarded for keeping it up. And I think it's the same with electricity and with the, you know, Victoria is really suffering the effects of climate change. I've reported on farmers who are, you know, seeing a sort of increasing dryness and we're getting these terrible bushfires and heat waves. So I'd like to know how you can create that sort of cultural shift where we have climate disruptions at the front of our mind and permanent policies are put in place so that we are frugal with water and efficient with electricity and everyone kind of gets it. They know the reason. It's a climate reason that we're doing all of that. Yeah. And look, I think there is... So this will be some of the work we're doing to look at our climate change programs and policies. We'll look at this particular question because... Uh, how do you take? How do you do this with communities, not to them, but with them? And uh, that's the sort of work we'll be doing. I think it's really important because I think we've taken at one level backward step in this area, uh, and we also need to provide really tangible ways that communities and families feel they can contribute to the issues. Mm. Uh, so, so we will be doing quite a bit of work and talking to communities about how we how they come with us on this journey. I think people do get a sense that it's significant, but sometimes that can feel overwhelming and can we do anything about it? So it's getting people to understand the issue by giving people tangible ways they can make a contribution as well. What sort of things are you thinking of? Oh, well, I think exactly what you were saying. It's things around water efficiency, it's energy efficiency, it's um, how we manage waste going forward is um, how we look after our foreshore areas around the coast, how we deal with flooding or drought issues, all of those things, I think, but putting it in a way that people can embrace it at their local community level and in their own local household. Mm. Well, we do our best on this radio program to keep it front of mind, but I, I really hope the government can lead a bit on this and I'm really glad to hear some of the things coming out of your government about it. So thank you very much to speak to our, speaking to our audience today. Um, people want to see climate action and green jobs and a government who's up to managing this transition. So I hope we can speak to you again. Yeah, I look forward to that. All right. Thank you very much. So that was the Honourable Lisa Neville. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Lisa. Thank you very much. That was the Honourable Lisa Neville. She's the Minister for Climate Change in the Victorian Government. And I'm sorry, listeners, for a rather dodgy line there, but I have my name is Adrian Burugaba. We're at a crucial time in history now where these great mega mines are coming to us and asking us as the traditional owners of the land to sign away our uh, native title rights and interests to that land. These mines are, are, are very dangerous and they're detrimental to not only just the environment but the, the laws and customs that you know, are, are based in that land that are very important to the Wangan and Jagalingu people. The most important thing is for us to maintain our cultural integrity. Some of these mines will be here right into the future 
40, 50, 60 years from now. We could lose our identity. We're going to make every effort to stop this mining company from destroying our land. I'm going to convince all of our people to stand together as one people and one voice. And then we're going to ask all Australian people and people from all over the world to stand with us and unite with us to fight this fight. This is not an easy fight for us. And we're asking everybody to stand with us to stop these mines from destroying this land. We don't need this coal. We don't need them. We don't need their money. We need them to leave our land alone. We need to protect that land. You know, our forefathers, my father and their grandfather, they had their, their money, they had their wages garnished and money taken off them, and so there was no inheritance for us. And all we've got left now is our inheritance is the land, and that's our responsibility. guest is Tom Doig. Uh, he's a writer. His new book is called The Coal Face. The opening quote is from Tony Abbott who said, coal is good for humanity. Well, this book tells another story. It's about the small town of Morwell after the Hazelwood coal mine burned out of control for 45 days. It was not good for humanity. Tom went down there and met everyone except GDF sewers who are responsible for the mine and the chief health officer, who I think should have evacuated the most vulnerable people. So how are you, Tom? Very good. Thanks for having me on your show. I'm delighted. Look, Tom, I reread your book last night, and the most chilling fact that came to me was that the town, while the town was choking on ash from the fire, that company, GDF Sewers, they only missed one day of power production. What does this show yes. us? It's... um. Well, I mean, it just speaks volumes about, I guess, um, GDF Sewers' priorities. Um, but, yeah, I think they lost 90% of production for 24 hours and then were back up and running it at full capacity for the next 44 days of the fire. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, they didn't necessarily need to shut down production. It wasn't necessarily going to help put the fire out, but I think it does speak volumes about where their priorities lie. Mm. Well, another scene you describe was eight elderly or disabled people who had been told to evacuate. I think they'd got an automatic message, like an automated message. Yeah, that's right. And they were left shuffling helplessly, you say, around Maryvale Crescent for hours and hours, and it must have been hot, the fire was all around. Why didn't they get the yeah. help they were, need they were needing? Um, I, th I think that was probably just a, a breakdown in the automated systems being used by whatever agency it was, whether or not that was the CFA or the council. Um, but, yeah, they were sending out, I think, automated mess phone messages to everyone living in southern Morwell near where the fire um, caught caught the town on fire, it caught the German club on fire. Mm. Um, but, unfortunately, in the case of some of these, these residents who are in residential care, they, they're just not um, equipped to self-evacuate and they had nowhere to go. And I mm. think, to make matters worse, that... Um, a lot of the roads were blocked off. So when these people were trying to call their carers or call taxis, no vehicles were even able to get through. Mm. Um, and they were just, again, down the list of priorities. Mm. I mean, you know, obviously the firefighters had their hands full trying, first of all, to stop the fire from getting into Morwell and then later that night um, was in the mine. Um, but, yeah, I guess those vulnerable residents were bottom of the list. Well, I think your book's really valuable for that sort of description because 
it's like the New Orleans flood. You know, it, it sort of highlights mm. the problems we've got in society where we, we, haven't, we have to make better plans because these kind of events are going mm. to happen more frequently. And it's really valuable to describe that. And it's not the greatest tragedy. Exactly. They probably were saved in the end, but, you know, that, that was pretty awful. Well, as the 45 yes. days went on, people started to get sick and the Department of Health mm. didn't seem able to help them. Can you tell us about Colleen Robinson? Oh, God. Oh, Colleen's story just breaks my heart to <laughs> yeah. this day. Um, so, so she's the woman I heard about. She is, I think she was all of 18 or 19 when the fire broke out. And she was in a pretty, um, I guess, bad bad way health-wise before the fire. She, she got diagnosed at a very late state with severe kidney failure. I think she had one completely non-functional kidney and one kidney on 4%. So I think she was actually hours away from death when she, she made it to the hospital just in time. Um, so she went in for a sort of round of, you know, emergency hemodialysis and so forth. And oh no, actually she'd been shipped from a hospital uh, to Tarelgan for her first round of hemodialysis just as the fire took hold. So for the next 14 days, she had to catch a bus from her home in Newborough, which is about 10 k's west of Morwell. She had to mm. catch the bus through downtown Morwell, where the smoke's at its worst, mm. to Tarelgan, where she'd get hemodialysis, blood cleaning, um, you know, hospital assistance, and then she'd be, you know, a bit, you know, perked up, and then she'd have to catch the bus right back through the smoke. And this is with kidneys that cannot process normal everyday toxins, let mm. alone this sort of horrible cocktail of... Um, fine particulate matter, heavy metals, um, carbon monoxide, all the, the awful, um, well, deadly in some cases, um, poisons in the smoke. Um, mm. So Colleen just copped it horribly badly. Um, and then her father, who was, uh, I think, again, already quite sick with pre-existing lung conditions, died a couple of months later. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's still an open question about if and how much the mine fire smoke contributed to his death. Well, that this is what your book raises, all these people whose story perhaps would never have been told unless you went down to interview them and find out about it, you know, and they're perhaps people who are not the normal protesters, they're not people who go and take great offence and, you know, that's um, terrible, really. I don't can't understand why a woman like that wasn't immediately diagnosed as the hospital. You can't go back into that area. You can't go back anywhere near those conditions. You need to be taken... It's because, Vivian, she didn't live in the south of Morwell and where... Um the Chief Health Officer, Rosemary Lester, decided that the, the zone of safety began was just over the train tracks in, mm. in Morwell. So the majority of all of Morwell was considered safe, quote-unquote. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, if you're living all the way in, way in Newborough, not an issue. Mm. Um, yeah, and let alone the fact that she then had to catch the bus through downtown mm. Morwell. So I guess, again, it's just a um, you know, massive uh, organisational and bureaucratic failings. Mm. Um, yeah, and who cops it? the people who are suffering the worst already. Yeah. Um, I you think that's one of the things that was clearest for me. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say yeah, that uh, in events like this, the effects are, are felt very unevenly, and it often is the people who are already suffering the most and who are most living precarious lives that then suffer the worst. Oh, you know, um, if you had a little bit of money, you could, you could stop working and go rent a motel or go stay at your, you know, mm. wealthy friend's house in Melbourne. <laughs> but if you don't have any wealthy friends in Melbourne and you don't have a job to even take time off from, you know, these people were just stuck there getting poisoned. Mm. 
You talk about Morwellian language. I don't think you could resist that pun. <laughs> the big brother, Morwellian. It wasn't actually my pun, I have to say. I did love the pun, but that pun comes from Tara Dean and Ron Ipsen. Oh, How good is that? Morwellians, Morwellians. Morwellian. Well, you know, the things that were coming out of the health department, apart from these recorded announcements, you must evacuate and, and then they don't care. But, you know, the mm. health department send out things saying, I quoted one here, um, relative, the ash is relatively non-toxic. Well, what on earth does that mean? And, oh and, God! You know, and climate change is going to provoke more events like this, and more often. And I think that's why you know we've done a few programs on heat, stre- you know, heat waves, and, and again, vulnerable people are the ones who get it first and and don't protest about it. Yeah. But climate change is going to force us to make much better, more caring sort of systems. I think, and I would yeah. like you to say how well, we're going to fail horribly as a society, oh. and it's going to get far, far worse. No, well, I, I think you know, well, your books one and the inquiry coming up again will put more material out there for people to chew on. In, in, in especially, I think the health department. And I'd like mm. you to say, what do you think the health department in the future should do to respond to a crisis like this? Well, I think that the health department, um, in coordination with with other departments, including the Department of um, Health and Services, which I think has been rebranded as something else. But um, anyway, the mob who look after housing as well as health, and then in coordination with um, Craig Lapsley, who's the Emergency Management Commissioner, they need to have really robust counter-disaster plans in place. And they have to pre-plan evacuations and how that might work um, mm. because one of the sort of slightly disturbing things that Craig Lapsley uh, admitted when I did an interview with him and I was asking about potential evacuations and what plans are in place he basically said there weren't any plans like mm. no one at any level of uh, state or um, federal or local government had planned for this worst case scenario mm. of evacuating a town and the same would go for Anglesey um, you know it's a beautiful small beachside town right next to a exposed pit of brown coal surrounded by flammable heathland. Yeah. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there is no robust plan in place for what happens if, if the worst does happen there. Um, and those plans just, you know, people need to get employed and the money needs to get spent mm. so that um, we can react on the front foot, not the back foot, and get people out before it is um, too late. Right. I mean, one of the tragedies, I think, uh, of the, the Hazelwood Mine Fire is that it was... It was treated for too long as a bushfire event because um, mm. that's where most of the planning and the precedents existed. And bushfires are awful and they can be very fatal, but they, they never affect a single area for more than a few hours. Um, but this mine fire happened in the exact same place for 1,000 hours. Yeah. Um, so any of the protocols in terms of like, is the is the air a bit dangerous to breathe? Oh, I'll give it a couple of hours, it'll get better. Um, in Morwell, you know, different... Um, Alerts were being issued every couple of hours, but the people were just getting poisoned the whole time, yeah. you know, and it didn't stop. It didn't stop for over six weeks. Oh, and Craig gosh. Lapsley and Rosemary Lester knew that that yeah. was going to be the case within three or four days. Any doctor would have been able to tell, you know, the, the, what the particulate matter and the carbon monoxide. Mm. But let's get on with telling the story. When those firefighters, mm. the CFA firefighters, you described them, they finally got into the place where the mi- mine was burning. It wasn't that central mm-hmm. place where they were still producing coal and um, sending it off. But when they got in there, tell us what they found. Gosh, okay. So this is this is all through the eyes of um, Doug Steely, who's a who's a brave and heroic man and one of the few firefighters who's willing to actually speak to media. 
because unfortunately, if you're an MFB member, you've basically got a media gag on you now where you could lose your job speaking mm. up. And with the CFA, they're volunteers, but a similar kind of code of silence seems to exist. So the fact that Doug said anything is, is brave and courageous of mm. him. But he, he just saw, I mean, I won't swear on air, he just described it as a cluster F-U-C-K um, of inadequate provisions. Um, the, as the fire raged throughout the mine, it took out both the power lines and the emergency backup power lines, and it, it knocked out the water pumps. So there was actually, like, almost no water pressure for the firefighters to plug their hoses into. So they were surrounded by, like, literally kilometres of, of walls of flames with almost no water to put it out and having to travel vast distances in pitch black with smoke um, with no maps provided to them because GDF sewers didn't have any maps um, printed out in advance. They were, do they were drawing um, what get called mud maps, just sort of scribbles on pieces of paper going, oh, go this way, don't fall down that cliff, uh, you know, keep going along there and then put out the fire, please. Um, and Doug, I mean, and this is sort of the, the real apocalypse now vision, um, he finds himself sort of as the sun is coming up sort of, you know, eight hours into his shift or whatever it is, mm. um, <coughs> trying to defend the main uh, clean water pump at the bottom of the mine, which is pumping water to the entire Hazelwood mine. Um, so not all of the, the um, hydrants got knocked out, but lots of them did. But this, this pump doesn't actually have its own sprinkler systems to protect it, and it doesn't have hydrants for the firefighters to plug into. So they're sort of faced by a burning wall of coal, like literally dozens of metres high, that's about 30 metres away from them, and they've got one tanker with, you know, three minutes' worth of water in it, and they're just looking at this wall of coal going, if the wind changes, we've just got to get out of here so quickly so we don't die, mm. and it's going to take out the entire pump, and that would have been the whole mine, and this would have been a fire of, of a magnitude, you know, unimaginably worse than what we had. Um, mm. So it's by the sheerest good fortune, according to Doug, that it, you know things didn't go much, much worse down there. Mm. Gives me chills still to this day. Yeah, it's chilling to hear it. And you mentioned how now the workers are sort of gagged. A lot of them are reticent to speak, and and for sure they won't want to speak, even if they're banned from not banned from speaking. They might lose their job if they give away too much. And you quoted things that were on Facebook at the time. Apparently, all the community got together, Facebooked each other, and started really mm. marvelous community organisation. But they started to realise what was happening and some of these anonymous Facebook messages I've got one here just to read to the listeners um, from one of these mm. blokes he said we have to drive to the bottom of the open cut mine, these are workers from the mine not the firefighters, we are unprotected we are told to use the back gate as our carbon monoxide readings are too high, medical teams at the front gate will not let us leave we have felt so light headed throwing up etc and then we drive on the road in heavy vehicles if I don't do this I'll lose my job so, look, it sounds like it will be up to the judge at that um, hearing if anonymous testimony will be allowed at the mm. reopened mine fire inquiry. But what, what important questions do you think remain could remain unanswered if these workers can't speak to the inquiry confidentially? I, I, look, I think this is a, such an important question and I'm actually halfway through writing an article about it right now. Um, I think, you know, it's great that the inquiry has been reopened and it's great that it is addressing some of the health concerns, both in terms of um, investigating what looks like a almost certain spike in deaths during the fire of about 11 extra deaths at a minimum, um, as well as ongoing medium and long-term health effects. Um, but what seems like disturbingly lacking from the new terms of reference is 
a sort of more more thoroughgoing investigation of how the fire actually started because you know some of the other um messages that we've got is that you know workers suggesting that the fire was actually burning in the mine already the day before the bushfire so on the saturday um mm-hmm. and i actually talked to um the chair of the inquiry bernard teague about this on tuesday um and he was saying they they did their best you know quote best to investigate this um last year and that they did have um, certain leads. I'll, I'll read it to you. He says, My recollection was that there was some substance to these allegations, but we couldn't get hold of a person who would put their name to it. Um, so basically they didn't investigate it. Mm. Um, so that, to me, is, is, a, is a complete red flag that we need, at the very least, um, you know, robust confidentiality um, clauses so that people can testify confidentiality and that the workers can be reassured of their rights and their protections in this situation um, or even some sort of situation where they can testify anonymously uh, and have their identities withheld. Um, obviously, anonymous testimony creates some problems if it can't be checked up on, but I think we need robust uh, systems for confidential testimony and I think that this needs to be actively pursued by the Board of Inquiry, not just let, let up to workers who feel like, oh, I might just take a risk and testify and hope it stays confidential mm. and that I don't lose my job. Because mm. that's, that's where the system is at the moment. Like, the, um, if, you, if you go to the um, Hazelwood Inquiry website, uh, if you just Google Hazelwood Mine for Inquiry, it'll come up, and you check out how do I submit uh, a submission, it says, mm, you know, uh, anonymous testimony is not an option. Yeah, it says the board will not accept anonymous submissions, but it will consider keeping keeping submissions confidential on a case by case basis. Oh. Um, <laughs> which raises the question: What happens if you get your request for confidentiality rejected? They just go, "No, nah, it's not confidential, guys. We'll just publish it." Like <laughs> it is so far from being reassuring, and it is it is so clear to me from the um, months I've spent down in the valley that there are you know appalling stories that. Um, that are circulating that have more than a, just a grain of truth in it. Mm. And, you know, the only only people whose interests are being served at the moment by not hearing this testimony are the interests of GDF sewers and those shareholders. It's not serving the interests of the public, of the community, and it's not serving the interests of the inquiry board, quite frankly. It's All it's doing is, is propping up this culture of silence, which yeah. GDF sewers is quite happy with. Gosh, if I was a worker going to work and getting carbon monoxide poisoning, I'd want to sue the company for... You know. Anyway, well, that's another yeah, I mean, issue. That but... is still, that's still on the cards, Vivian. And yeah. we are hearing um, some stories from the CFMEU, the union there, um, about workers who have suffered severe lung function decline and are looking into legal action. So, mm. you know, watch this space. Yeah, we um, will. Listen, what should be done right now to make that coal face safe from fire? Um. It is, I mean, the, the northern coalface of Morwell is a particular mess because of how it's been mismanaged. I think, I think that GDF sewers have been forced by last year's inquiry to put a whole lot more sprinklers back on it. Um, the only reason there weren't sprinklers there in the first place is because when the mine was privatised in the 90s, uh, the State Electricity Commission changed the rules um, so that any new private owner, if the pipes started leaking, they could just rip them up and sell them for scrap and not replace them. Mm. Um, so, so the pipes have been replaced, and that's that's only a good thing if you look at it in a very close uh, close reading. Like that, it, they never should have not had sprinklers on them. Mm. Um, so there needs to be maximum sprinklers put in place, no matter how much that costs. And then they need to sort of, as quickly as possible, look at capping 
the mine with fire retardant substance, be that clay or um, foam or concrete or something. Mm. But there are horrible problems um, with the, the coalface closest to Morwell, which is that it's 130 metres tall. Uh, it's only 400 metres from the houses at the edge of Morwell, um, which is ridiculously close, 400 metres, you know. Mm. Um, and there's a freeway, like a whopping freeway through the middle of the buffer zone which has basically disturbed the groundwater flow. So the, the bank is increasingly unstable. So any rehabilitation um, is going to be an incredibly complicated process because it runs the risk of uh, make basically forming like a, an underground dam that will build up and cause a massive landslide. Um, and, and that, you know, hopefully that's the book that um, I won't have to write in five years when yeah. there's a massive collapse. And well, who's, 80 people who's, who would pay for this rehabilitation? The, the company is required to pay for some of it, but I think it's a, not, it's a small amount, according to your book, relatively yeah, to what's the, needed. Yeah, the rehabilitation bond is something like $15 million. Um, and I think quotes for the actual true cost of rehabilitation range from $80 million to $200 million. So... <laughs> That's a shortfall of anywhere from $65 million to $185 million. Um, that is if, if GDFC has just decided to forfeit their bond and, I don't know, declare bankruptcy or something, which, um, you, know, you know, you never know with companies. They can restructure very quickly and their finances can change overnight. Um, so, yeah, look, who's going to foot the bill? Uh, the Victorian taxpayer. No. One way or another, unfortunately. Oh. That's, the, that's the sad truth of it. All right, look, we will watch that space. I've just got one more question, Tom. This is really fascinating, but I, I think, you know, we'll have to have another interview later course, in course. the year to find out what happens next. Um, but, look, you dedicate the book especially to the local group called Voices of the Valley, and we did yes. speak to Wendy Farmer before on this program. Uh, yes, some of right. them previously thought the protesters against Hazelwood were, and I'll quote you, a pain-in-the-butt nuisance, and they thought they were all greenies and ferals and... But they changed, and this Morwell fire activated them. Could you just tell us what sort of effective actions did they take? I was impressed by the social media connections they had, but what else did they do that you know, made them so admirable from your point of view? Yeah, I was just so inspired when I went to Morwell and met these Voices of the Valley um, mob because they were you know, a, a small group, sort of anywhere from, from 10 to 20 people, depending on the day, you know, mainly middle-aged people with either families or jobs, um, who just had such a crappy experience with the mine fire that had a guts full or a lung full perhaps um, and were now fighting back. And, and none of these people really had a background in being activists. None of them were self-proclaimed greenies. Um, but they basically went and did um, work that the health department wasn't doing and they did their own investigation into the uh, death statistics during the time of the fire and they found what appeared to be a spike in deaths. They took it to the um, birth, deaths and marriages registry, got those figures, got them checked by... Um, an eminent scientist in Queensland called Professor Adrian Barnett, who confirmed, I think, an 89% probability of 11 extra deaths uh, with a 95% chance of an extra death in Terralgan. And all of this got onto ABC um, 7.30 Victoria and was a big scoop. This was September last year. Um, and it basically prompted Daniel Andrews to say, yes, the mine for inquiry needs to be reopened. Great. So it was thanks to the work of a dozen, you know, middle-aged, you know, rotary mums turned activists. Um, yeah. And it was so inspiring. If, if it wasn't for that work, perhaps the inquiry wouldn't be reopened and we wouldn't even be having this, this conversation. Mm. Um, but I, as far as I'm concerned, they were doing the work of the health department and they were also doing the work of investigative journalists. 
Um, I think they're an amazing mob. And <laughs> go to their Facebook page, Voice of the Valley. They're awesome and they're very active. Um, and they did so much more. But I think that's their big win. And they're, they're monitoring um, the long-term health study that Monash University is doing very closely. They push for that to be expanded from not just Morewell but to the entire Latrobe Valley because towns of Tarelgan and Moe and Newborough and Churchill were also affected. And that, that seems to be um, the line that the Victorian government is running with now. They're talking about the Latrobe Valley not more well. Again, all because of a dozen, you know, really fired up individuals. Mm. Well, good on them. And I hope they join with the bigger movement. Uh, I think the Greens have got a big campaign and there's a much bigger movement of people listening to this program right now who will join with those people. But thank you very much, Pe- um, um, Tom. We're having a, a raffle tonight uh, for the Radiothon and the prize yeah. is your book. The coal face. Oh, wonderful. Well, <laughs> so someone will be raffle, very lucky. And raffle tickets. Out, they can just go buy it for $10. That's <laughs> cheap, isn't it? Don't tell them that. <laughs> but anyway, it's... Such uh, good value. Such good value. <laughs> no, we're going to make lots more than $10 in the raffle, I hope. But that's all for radio. Oh, fun. yeah, of course. Thank you very much. So, look, that was Tom Doig. He's writer. His book is in, published by Penguin. It's called The Coal Face. He's just told you the price, $10. So please read it. And um, thank you very much, Tom, for speaking to us on air. Now, we've got time for a little bit of music and after that we're going to hear from Peter Murford, a complete change of tune here, uh, from Moreland. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. About two months ago, I went to a talk on decarbonizing the economy and the transition to renewables. The speaker at the talk was Bob Massey. He's a really inspiring guy who worked for the Obama administration, and he's now at the pointy end of climate action policy in the making in the United States. One of the most interesting things he talked about, at least for me, was the fact that he was saying local communities – rather than national governments, were setting the standard for creating policies for sustainability and transitioning to renewables. He said that it was the mayors of cities in the United States who were having the most impact on those kinds of policies. Now, here in Melbourne, the city of Moreland in the inner north seems to be following a similar path, and they're doing it with the help of a local organization that works with communities, partners and governments to implement sustainable energy projects. They're called the Moreland Energy Foundation, and they're holding a special event this week where the public are invited to hear and participate in a discussion about climate change, the transition to renewables, and energy futures. We've got the Moreland Energy Foundation CEO, Paul Murphy on the line to give us a little bit of background and tell us about the event. Good morning, Paul. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. It's a little bit chilly, but I'm well, thank yeah, you. Yeah, all, we're all a bit chilly down here. <laughs> now, I just wanted to start by uh, telling people where your office is. It's on Sydney Road in Brunswick, and yeah. you have uh, the city of Moreland in your name. But from what I've been reading and hearing about your organization, I think the philosophy of your organization has a much bigger reach. Can you tell us a bit about that philosophy? 
Yeah, look, um, our mission is basically to work with communities um, to transition to low-carbon futures, and and that's um, focusing on not just the technical options, but more the social and economic um, and environmental context within which you can do that. So we're very much first and foremost about uh, community engagement and working through solutions and seeing those solutions implemented. Um, we do that primarily. Um, our focus is on Moreland, but we work with um, partners right across Australia um, and, uh, yeah, broadly, local governments, uh, other levels of government, private businesses, um, anyone who really wants to work with us to, to generate these solutions. So while we are the Moreland Energy Foundation, we do have a broader reach, that's right. And uh, what kind of projects have you been involved with? Look, we've got a real variety of projects. Our staff uh, come from a variety of backgrounds. They might be technically oriented or they might be uh, community engagement specialists. So we, we're working, for example, across um, six or seven local government areas in Melbourne at the moment and eight in New South Wales organising and delivering solar bulk buy programs. So they're mainly targeted at um, residential customers. And and what we do is um, make it easy for households to pick a good system that's high quality and a good price. So we use our independence to to um, do that work for the households and then we work with the local governments to offer the, the um, good quality solar products out to, out to the households. So that's one aspect of our work. And, and in other areas, we're working um, with developers on looking at how they can implement sustainability from the design stage of their development. Um, we work with uh, governments on applied research, so implementing solutions in households and monitoring the before and after impacts of, say, energy efficiency measures. So it's a pretty diverse program. Um, are Paul, yeah. are you finding uh, the uptake of interest in, in what you're doing increasing over the last couple of years? Oh, look, it, it has. Um, we've been around for over 10 years now, in fact, about 14 years, and um, the nature of the work that we're doing now is much more system-wide. I guess early days, what we were on about was just demonstrating some of these solutions, working with a few households to implement energy efficiency measures. But now we're talking community scale. People, uh, particularly local communities, are interested in transitioning um, their energy economy, if you like, um, from the ground up and looking to system-wide, community-wide solutions and really plotting out a path that can be implemented um, and achieve really big reductions in emissions and transition their, their local economies as well. What would you say, uh, I know it's a big question, but what would you say is a couple of the biggest successes that you've had so far? Um, well, well, I think the current... Um, wave of solar implementation and really making it easy for people to, to choose solar. I mean, we've seen incredible growth over the last, um, you know, six or so years in solar, and, and I think I wouldn't attribute that to the foundation, but what we've been able to do is to, to really help people to ride that wave, if you like, confidently and, and know that the products they're getting are right for them. Um, so I think the uptake in solar, I think also... 
we've got a good um, connection with different levels of government and other local governments and helping them to get policies in place and strategies in place is, I think, a really important contribution as well um, because it's, it's not just about the technical solutions. I mean, I know the technical solutions are important, but what we need to be able to do is, is get people engaged, get government setting the right policies and, you know, and, and starting this transformation of the energy economy. So um, a lot of our work is trying to make that pathway a lot clearer and, and more attractive to the broader community. Now, look, uh, my, my understanding is that Australians love solar and uh, yeah. the, the, the uptake has been remarkable. But uh, the, the, the logical question for me at this point, and, uh, you know, you obviously follow this much more closely than, than we in Monday Breakfast do, but what, what are the obstacles for, for, for achieving your goals? Because uh, there does seem to be a certain level of resistance at, at certain, at, on, on, in certain quarters. Yeah, look. Obstacles, I guess, is that they really cluster around that idea of business as usual. It's really, really difficult to transition, um, you know, economic systems, obviously, uh, because there's vested interests. And I think um, when you're looking to change the way the um, change market outcomes, if you like, uh, there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers, and, and um, there's real resistance to change. I, I think for to give an example, I think that our local um, energy network needs to change. It needs to move away from an idea of being a centralised system where, you know, we have big um, power generators, uh, polluting power generators down in Latrobe Valley basically servicing most of the state. We need to be able to transition that system so that more sustainable energy sources can plug into that network right across the state and make the the whole system more more efficient, more more um, economically viable, and more sustainable. But obviously, that's a massive change, and you've it's, it, you've got to turn that um, that part of the economy around. So yeah, that's that's one example. But you look at a, a range of examples where um, change is threatening to some parts of um, the market, and and mm. we've got to be able to you know change the incentives. And. Uh... I started my introduction by saying, and in, in that talk by Bob Massey, he was saying that the uh, in the United States, he thought the mayors of cities were the ones who were the real, really at the pointy end of of changing these things. Do you think that's the case in Australia as well, or at least in your in, in your experience in Melbourne? Is it the is it the local level that's moving things forward more quickly? Uh, yeah, undoubtedly, really, it's it's. Um some of the local governments uh, across Australia and in, in Melbourne um, are the ones leading the way. Um, they are the ones that are implementing, you know, significant emissions reductions policies and then trying to um, implement the, the measures associated with those. To do that successfully, you know, they're going to have to get state governments and federal governments and international agreements lined up to be able to achieve mm. our ultimate goals. But the the local communities and the local governments are driving the change and, and they're making real inroads. And, and I think what we're going to see over the next couple of years um, is those other levels of government getting on board with the local governments and uh, the local communities. And uh, it's a bit of an irresistible wave of change, I think, that's... Uh, that's going to be generated from the, this local action that's, um, that's really starting to take off.
I think that's very encouraging, particularly uh, uh, with us down at 3CR. We're uh, we're all in favor of sort of change from below, and uh, Mm. we sort of think very seriously that that's that's the way things must go. You've got a you've got a community event coming up this Wednesday. It's called Zero Carbon Evolution Partnership. Tell us a little bit about what that means and and why you're having it now. Yeah, it's pretty much our local strategy that's along the lines of what you were describing from Bob Massey. And it, it's basically, we, we've developed a strategy last year in partnership with our local government, Moreland City Council, to reduce emissions by over 20% by 2020. And that's um, only five or six years away. So there's some significant um, measures in there that we need to implement. But the partnership event is about recognising that the local government itself can't do it. The foundation ourselves can't do it. We need as many partners across the community mm. facing the same direction. So Wednesday's about um, about that uh, part of our strategy, and it's about celebrating some of the local institutions that are already acting. I mean, we've got businesses, um, schools, uh, faith groups, uh, other sorts of organisations across Moreland that, that have done really significant things. You know, they've, they've implemented big solar arrays, they've uh, invested in significant energy efficiency outcomes and, and they're turning their organisations around. And, and um, so Wednesday's about celebrating those um, local institutions that are moving forward with a view to um, encouraging others to jump on board as well. Um, And the other part of... So that's the first uh, aim. And the second part is to look at our current strategy and and talk about where we've got in our first year of implementation of this strategy, talk about some of the wins we've had, some of the um, barriers that remain in front of us and get get a conversation going with the community about how we can tweak our strategy to be more impactful in the next couple of years. So um, in that second part of the evening, we'll have a a roundtable and um, be inviting people from the community to to give us their ideas uh, about key aspects of our strategy. Now, give us uh, give us the details of that. Where where is it being held, and what's the time and stuff? So it's um, it's kicking off. It goes between four and seven pm on Wednesday. Um, at four o'clock, we've got the the local mayor and also the Victorian Minister for Energy and Resources, uh, Lily D'Ambrosio, coming along to address the the gathered. Um, but then uh, after some refreshments at five thirty, we'll have that community Q and A panel, um, and it's held. It's going to be held at the Plumbing Industry Climate Action Centre, which in itself is a, is a great local institution that trains up um, plumbing trades in. Uh, in not just plumbing, but the the sustainability aspects of plumbing, uh, particularly around things like solar hot water. Um, So the Plumbing Industry Climate Action Centre, which is in Albert Street in Brunswick, uh, 306 Albert Street in Brunswick. Thanks very much to The Breakfast Show, Monday Breakfast Show. That was uh, John Langer interviewing Peter Murphitt. Thanks also to the Honourable Lisa Neville and the writer Tom Doig. If you want to read Tom's book, it's called The Coalface. Um, thanks also to Michael for stepping in at short notice today, plus Jane, Miwa, Roger and Glenn for the podcasts. 
Probably the most important thing, listeners, I like to give you something to do, and it's a campaign. Going and hearing talks and participating is is a big part of it, but campaigning is the most important, I think. And we heard about those voices of the valley down there at Morwell. They need help. They need people like us to get on their side. The Greens have just been doing a listening tour down there, and their campaign is underway. If you want to get involved with the campaign to you know close down Hazelwood and replace it with something better... The website is called replacehazelwood.com.au. If you can't uh, find anything there, just ring up the Greens office, Ellen Sandals' office. Its number, uh, The telephone number is 932 846 37. And thank you very much for listening.